0: I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on, check. I've been told, but I'm keeping on,
1: keeping on, check. Good afternoon, good evening. I'm Dove and you're on Equal Footing. Boy, we, we toggle topics, don't we? Last week was a very challenging topic to cover. We were talking about of the challenge of long-term monogamy, both from a social science perspective and from a religious perspective. And this week, we are diving into what can at first appear to be an abstruse religious topic, halachic topic, topic of Jewish law, organization of the Jewish people from a political, social, religious perspective. Don't tune out. It's not as... Boring, as it might first appear. (laughs) It is actually about some ancient setups from the Bible. The Torah set out a way for the Jewish people to be organized in terms of their interpretation of the law over time. And that ancient court has unfortunately gotten a bad press for other reasons. And we'll get to that disclaimer in a moment. But the ancient court of the Jewish people. is called the Sanhedrin. And hopefully your ears are perking up a little bit. You've probably heard that word before. Where, where do I know that word? If you're not Jewish. If you are Jewish, probably you know it, but not so relevant to your contemporary life. But you know what? This ancient grouping of 71 sages, and one of our esteemed guests tonight will explain what I'm talking about. I won't leave it too mysterious. This ancient grouping that, that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses himself, set up thousands of years ago, actually could be relevant today. Their efforts as recently as less than 20 years ago to revive the ancient Sanhedrin, this group that was responsible for interpreting the law of Hashem, the law of God, into our current reality, dealing with the the conflictual and difficult edges of the, at the edge of our understanding of where our contemporary lives meet with religious law and is this as it couldn't be more relevant today i mean think about if you whether you're jewish or not you probably have a sense of the way that global religions are organized and the fact that the jewish religion is and i'm jewish i get to say this type of stuff is by far the least uh, certainly the least hierarchical Arguably the least organized. Possibly the least coherent. I say that with lots of love and respect. I would say definitely the least cogent. And why is that? Because we haven't had, we don't have a Pope. We don't have a patriarch. A single patriarch, a living patriarch. Like exists in the Eastern Orthodox uh, churches, for example. We don't have a Dalai Lama. We don't even have a universally recognized council of Religious leaders to interpret the law and kind of tell us what, what works and what doesn't. We as a Jewish people are a very heterogeneous group, although we share, uh, DNA, we share ethnic identity, we share religious identity, we share a national affiliation in most cases, a love for the state of Israel. We are not reporting to a single Earthly source of knowledge when it comes to our spiritual observance. And if you're not a Jew, this may seem kind of weird to you. Like you, you kind of, you see, if you live in New York, for example, you'll see various forms of observance. You'll see people with wearing black and white and high socks and, and peos or the, uh, you know, the, the hair at the temples that, that seem very religious. And you'll see folks in, in Midtown Manhattan wearing a yarmulke. Uh, seem kind of religious, right? And then you'll know your Jewish friend that doesn't do either of those things and maybe doesn't even keep kosher, but they're still really Jewish. But who, who decides who's, who's actually following Jewish law or not? Who, who actually is the arbiter of what it is to be religious as a Jew? Now, if I haven't lost you, I want to introduce our two wonderful guests. These are, uh, Rabbis who have agreed to talk about, I would argue, one of the most sensitive subjects they're not representing, I want to be clear. I want to be clear. Neither Rabbi Shmuel Green nor Rabbi Shlomo Yafi, who are both uh distinguished teachers and scholars in their own right, neither representing that's a thing, it's very difficult to kind of represent some sort of uh governing body. they they're they're giving their own opinions, but they do come from perspectives on, on this issue and to the, and have uh, displaying courage, I think, to getting together, talking about ultimately what is one of the most, I think, sensitive issues in contemporary Judaism is that is, can we be united? Is there a way for us all to agree on interpretation of what we should and shouldn't do as Jews? What does it mean to be a Jew? What are the laws that we that we should and should not follow? Most, Many of them are agreed upon, but a lot of others are interpreted in very different ways. It's a core question. You know, It, it while we were in the diaspora, I mean, we're if we're in the diaspora now, we're choosing to be in the diaspora because we can go back to Israel. But when we were in the forced diaspora for nearly 2,000 years, we it made sense to... Heterogeneity? heterogeneity how do you say that? A heterogeneous kind of approach made sense to Jewish law. You know, if you're living in India, maybe you have to adjust to that reality a little bit. I don't know. If you're living... You know, in in uh, in the UK, that's going to be a different experience. Argentina, South Africa, etc. I know national law and 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 spiritual law are different, but still, you would expect some sort of adjustments. But we don't have to be in the diaspora anymore. Is it time we put on our kind of big boy shoes and and got together to create a united Judaism? That's the question on the table to some extent. Should we restore the Sanhedrin? Okay, let me introduce our discussers—not our debaters, our discussers tonight. Rabbi Shlomo Yaffe. Rabbi Shlomo Yaffe is a rabbi at the congregation Bene Torah in Springfield, Massachusetts, near some of my family. Dean of the Institute of of American and Talmudic Law, based in New York. He's rabbinical director of the Greater Springfield, Massachusetts, Kashrut Council. He's a member of the Rabbinical Council of America. Rabbi Yaffe has lectures and led seminars and taught legal education education programs in person and online throughout North America, as well as Africa, Australia, Latin America, and Europe. He's served as a pulpit rabbi in addition to being a scholar at Hull Hebrew Congregation in the UK, at Young Israel of Hartford in Connecticut, at Congregation Aguda Sachim in West Hartford, Connecticut, which is actually one of the first Orthodox congregations in Connecticut founded in the late 19th century. Rabbi Yafi is a past scholar in residence at Chabad at Harvard University, my alma mater, where he served the greater Harvard and MIT Communities. He's authored a number of articles on a broad range of issues related to tonight's topic. Many are available online, or most are available online. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, raised in Maine and Los Angeles. He studied in terms of rabbinical education in Miami, London, and New York, and he received his rabbinical ordination from Yeshivat Tomchei Tamimim Lubavitch in Brooklyn in 1989. Uh, so, Rabbi Shlomo Yaffe, it's really a pleasure to have you for the first time on Equal Footing. Thank you. I'm going to stop talking in a minute after I introduce Rabbi Shmuel Green. And Rabbi Shmuel Green uh, is—I uh, I was yeah—earlier you know, when we were talking today, Rabbi Green, I was going to uh, quiz you on your Minnesota Vikings fan fandom. So I'll do that later in the show, completely apropos of the subject. But I was born and raised. Way in,
2: more important, right? Way right, more
1: important. At least easier to answer. Well, we'll see. See, I give you the trivia question. Rabbi Green was born and raised in Minnesota. He made Aliyah to Bearshiva in Israel with his family before high school. Uh and despite, as I said, despite, despite growing up in the desert of the Negev, he never faltered in his loyalty to the Minnesota Vikings and the Minnesota Twins. Boo, I'm a Red Sox fan. And he's proud to pass on that burden to his own children. <laughs> That are currently growing up in the desert of New Jersey. Uh, Rabbi Green has served as an, as an Israeli paratrooper. He studied Jewish history and thought at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And this is important to tonight's subject. Under the guidance of Rabbi Adin Evan Israel Steinsaltz, he received rabbinical ordination studying with Rabbi Steinsaltz, who is one of the greatest rabbis of, of uh, recent times, and set out to work on Jewish and formal edu- edu- education in North America starting in 2001. Rabbi Green's a passionate and devoted Jewish educator, and he strives to empower Jews of all backgrounds and all places in the spectrum of, of observance, so to speak, to connect to and enjoy the, the richness of Jewish living. Rabbi Green is the director. He has served as the community ed, a director of education at Rutgers Hillel. He's directed various teen initiatives at the Partnership for Jewish Learning and Life. Uh, he's a director of the Steinsaltz Ambassadors Program and he his educational vision is really one that endeavors to nurture individuals and communities of young Jews to explore questions uh, that are particular to their Jewish spirituality and identity but also make Jewish learning relevant to anyone meaning an average American Jew not just those folks that uh, that are kind of on the ultra-observant uh, ultra, ultra observant end of the spectrum, and I think that's key to tonight's topic. So, uh, Rabbi Shmuel Green, welcome to Equal Footing.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Rabbi Yafi, who were the the Sanhedrin? When when did they get set up? When did they get disbanded?
3: Hey The Sanhedrin essentially begins in the times of Moses. So it's set up. We read about it in the Torah. Uh, it is the combination Supreme Court and an ultimate legislature of the Jewish people responsible for all interpretations of the Torah via the practice as well as broad powers to enact laws as needed to carry forth the spirit of the Torah. They continued pretty much even uh, through the Babylonian exile. They continued pretty much until some point, uh, uh, in the first century of the Common Era, when they voluntarily left their space in the temple, uh, which removed much of their powers, they existed as an ad hoc uh, informal group uh, until at some point where different opinions on the matter, but somewhere, we say typically in the fourth, perhaps early fifth century, um, when they ceased to exist even as an ad hoc group. Uh, that's the... Basic
1: outline. So the Sanhedrin are, are kind of disbanded, and I think that even the head of the Sanhedrin at that point in the whatever it was in the the early fifth centuries ends up being executed in, in 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 that point in the the Byzantine Empire, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the is there any attempt afterwards to revive this this kind of great court, this governing body of of Judaism, or is is it just kind of left for dead?
3: Well, there there was a serious attempt to revive it in the 16th century by Rabbi Yosef Beirav. There's even, and the key point is that to be on a Sanhedrin, you need smicha, which is not, which is rabbinic ordination, but not the ordination that we have today, which is basically a test of knowledge, but rather you need a form of ordination uh, that was originally uh, given by Moses to his son, Hadron, and goes in an unbroken chain until it ends. Uh, that chain of that smicha, that special ordination, uh, is uh, has many characteristics. One of the key ones is that it has to take place uh, in the land of Israel. Uh, even one person with this ordination can ordain someone else the problem is once you no longer had anyone that ordination the chain broke and this is the key essence of the debate over the sanhedrin whether this ordination can be revived once it's uh, once it is once it is uh, broken and how it would be revived mm. so it's an attempt in the 16th century late 19th century early 20th century and then, last of all, by Rabbi Yad and Evan Yisrael in the early 21st century, and uh, Rabbi Green, I think, uh, it, it has a, had a ringside seat to that. So, yeah, we we'll be get can to tell that. Us about that.
1: before we get to the contemporary times. I mean, a, a lot of religions have at times suffered with broken lineages. Where you, it, it, you know, Judaism, we had this the the Sanhedrin, which is a group of of of, of seventy uh, scholars and sages. But in other religions, there were, were, you know, maybe one patriarch, for example, and the chain was broken. Why not, you know, if the chain was broken by force majeure, by a secular power, in this case, the Roman Empire at the time, why not kind of give ourselves a pass, uh, Rabbi Yafi, and reconstitute in the best way that we can instead of kind of, you know, throw up our hands and give up?
3: that that goes uh, that goes to two basic to two basic questions uh, the first is is this something necessary because quite frankly uh we're still here uh Judaism is still practiced by many Jews in a very intense way in accordance with that jewish law so so uh, thoroughly developed over the years there's been an enormous amount of scholarship and of observance since the last synod so the first question is you know, maybe we're just doing just fine without it. Secondly, until such time as it returns, there are certain things it provides. Secondly, um, Judaism doesn't get to make up things on its own. Um, the whole premise of classic halacha, classic Jewish law, is that we're following a system that, though it has human input, ultimately comes from God. And it's very clear that that all the sages and all the generations have always understood that a Sanhedrin needs to be made up of musmachin, of people with this special ordination that goes back to Moses, that we're talking about. The question is, as you indicated, can we revive this ordination? And that is what the whole discussion uh, over the last basically 600 years is revolving
1: around you know i think it's really cool and sorry to be so basic in my language but i I think it's really cool that as a jewish people we actually had this in the first place for quite democratic i mean the idea that there's this if not straight line representation at least um kind of a, a generalized sense of representing the people 70 70 or 71 or 69 depending on how you look at the different um the different textual interpretations you know there's there's mostly sages and there are a couple of kind of administrators that's that's a big body there's no other religion that in the judeo christian uh, line, uh, or in the Eastern religions that have this concept of kind of like a governing body it, not anywhere near that size. There are a couple of religions that had like, you know, one patriarch um, with some advisors that were kind of institutionalized. But I just think this is really cool. This is a really cool rabbit hole to go down. And I encourage you if you're listening and you're Jewish to like look up the Sanhedrin. I'm going to get to what you sh- probably shouldn't spend so much time on. Go beyond some of the initial Google search stuff and dig down on what this was about this this representative body I and mean, you're talking about um a democratic like religious body um you know hundreds of many many hundreds of years if not more than a 1000 years before you know the the Athenian democratic uh, era uh, before we go to our first break rabbi green he, he, as as rabbi yafi said you've had in your lifetime, a ringside seat to the most recent, serious, and I would say ongoing effort to reconstitute the Sanhedrin. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we go to break?
0: Yes, thank you. Um, Rabbi Adin Even Yisrael Steinfeld, um, He uh, he always wanted to push the Jewish people in the whole world to do to a certain to, to fulfill its purpose uh, and to get to a point where. Uh, um, we are not just surviving, but creating something new. We are fulfilling our purpose in the world. And it wasn't, he didn't, we, as his students at that time, which was around 2000, and, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 2005, 2008, uh, those three years, he really didn't publish it or publicize that he's doing We kind of found out about it, that he's doing this, that he's involved with this, but it didn't surprise us because I guess at, from the ringside seat, there wasn't a surprise. It was just one more thing That, uh, Rabbi Steinfeld was involved with in order to push the Jewish people in a certain direction. Um, so, so that was the ringside seat. It wasn't a, it wasn't like a big splash. It wasn't a big deal. It was one of many of the different projects that he was involved with, and he was pushing us to be involved with in order to get to the next. The next level to really uh, uh, come to come to a place of fulfilling our purpose. I just want to address, if you don't mind, one thing you said about the diaspora, the non-diaspora. Uh, is that is exactly one of the points of a Sanhedrin, or getting to a point of what are we here for? Meaning, even if you're in Israel, you can still be in, so to speak, the diaspora. You can still be in exile if you don't know what you're doing. That you're a stranger to your own purpose. And that is maybe the definition of being in galut, of being in mm-hmm. exile, a stranger to your own purpose. So right. therefore, we're there, but many of the people there don't even know why. Sure, what are we doing yeah. there? There, there? And that's where a there are a lot of studies that show
1: happened. that more, there's more secular identity amongst is, uh, Jews living in Israel than outside of Israel. So you know that, that 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 sense of being in diaspora, being in exile, or being disconnected, is not just geographical. Uh, It's a, it's a good point. You know, Rabbi Green, uh, we haven't had the opportunity in a couple of years here in the program to um, talk about Rabbi Steinsaltz. And uh, just before we go to break, I want to position for folks who this was. and, And it's, and it's really a pleasure to have someone on who studied with him, really, for decades, and Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz was—he was the first person since the medieval sage Rashi to actually complete a full translation and commentary on the Babylonian Talmud, um, and, and this is—it's it, 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 arguably like one of the your two or three most important um, kind of translations you could have as an as an English-speaking. Jew, or as, an, as someone who's not speaking in the original or understanding the original language in which it was, it was written, and this this translation was from 1965. Um, it began there, and it was, I think, completed in 2010. So you're talking about just an extraordinary 45 year work. And Time Magazine um, said that, you know, in, in, in Blessed Memory, that that Rabbi Steinsaltz was a was a one once in a millennium type of scholar. And so, really, if you don't know about Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, Look up uh, online and, and just extraordinary work and, and make sense to, to an outsider, someone that never you know, met him, but someone that, that is an admirer of his, of his work, of course, that he would have had the courage to at least address this issue of the reconstitution of the Sanhedrin. We'll be right back with Rabbi Shlomo Yafi and Rabbi Shmuel Green. We're talking about the reconstitution of the ancient Sanhedrin. Should we attempt... To unite, in a certain sense, the Jewish people globally. Not in a place, but around a new kind of religious standard-setting body. We don't have that. We, maybe the only religion that doesn't really have that. Maybe is that our strength? Or is it a weakness we need to address? We'll be right back. The says it's Mozart. But it sounds like bubblegum
2: when you're waiting
1: for the miracle, for the miracle to come. I can't get enough of Leonard Cohen. Equal footing is brought to you in part by DocuVax. Check out DocuVax—more relevant than ever. You got to take control of your medical files. Your medical information, like MRI and X-ray results, vaccine information, preventative screening results, preventative screening reminders, serology panel results, etc. Those—that data doesn't belong to your insurance company. You may have to share it sometimes to get reimbursement. But it doesn't belong to them it doesn't even belong to your doctor your primary care provider again there's a reason at times for them to have it but you need to control your medical file i'll tell you what it definitely does not belong to the government so if you want to have control over your medical file have all of your medical information test results etc in one single place get reminders when you need to get a new preventative screening like a breast cancer exam or a colorectal exam or you want reminders on blood panels etc information on allergies Put it all in one place, DocuVax, D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com. You can also get the DocuVax app on the iOS and Android app stores on your smartphone. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X. And for as little as $6.99 per month, if you're a subscriber to DocuVax, you can not only download and access all of your medical records from a secure HIPAA-compliant data database, data storage facility, but you can also have medical professionals, doctors and nurses included in that $6.99 per month that are on call for you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to validate and explain the records, the medical records in your file, vaccine records, blood test results, or anything else in your locker. You can also save money in terms of getting references to other specialists. So you don't have to go in to see your PCP to get a reference and spend unnecessarily a hundred, a couple hundred dollars, you can just get a reference in based on a test result or based on a need for a certain screening. So many people miss essential preventative screenings, miss updates on vaccines. And yes, of course, it's been brought to the fore, the need to be updated on your vaccines uh, because of the COVID-19 epidemic. But you know what? There are like 30 plus different vaccines that are available to you and are recommended in many cases for different, uh, for different viruses. So get up to date on your medical file. Go to docuvax.com or download the docuvax app. Again, that's D-O-C-U-V-A-X. And if you're a small company, uh, business owner and you want to provide docuvax subscriptions as a perk, like a health club membership, you can do so with discounted group rates. But you do have to mention when you call that you heard about DocuVax on the Equal Footing radio show. So you can call 833-859-1933. 833 this is for group discounts to DocuVax. If you're a small business owner, 833-859-1933. DocuVax. Operators are standing by. I've been caught. You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dov Tuzman. I'm joined by Rabbi Rabbi Shlomo Yaffe and Rabbi Shmuel Green. We're talking about something cool and ancient, the Sanhedrin, this body of 70 sages that Moses set up in biblical times and lasted all the way to their disbandment in the Roman Empire in the late 4th, early 5th century. And... Efforts to revive the Sanhedrin. And you can call and participate. And I want to hear from you, Rifki, in Borough Park. <laughs> Since last week, I could take your call. Tell me why this, I sh- tell me why we shouldn't be talking about this on the air. Tell me why this is too taboo a subject. I do want to hear that. And I want to hear your opinion. Why don't we reconstitute the Sanhedrin? Just cause it's hard. Just cause it's complex. We should give it a shot. We're never afraid as a Jewish people of the complex and the difficult? Call 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. Ask a question or make a comment to these esteemed scholars, Rabbi Shmuel Green and Rabbi Shlomo Yafi, on this issue of the reconstitution of the Sanhedrin. Or you can text a question or comment if you're shy about being on the air to 917-428-4062. That's 917 428-4062 428-4062 by text or by WhatsApp. Rabbi Yafi, did I step in it right before the break by saying we as a Jewish people don't have like a standard setting body? Because we do have halacha, we do have Jewish law, a lot of what is in of which is inviolate. It comes from the Torah and we kind of shouldn't even discuss it. But don't we have a ton that's really subject to interpretation also? We do. Uh,
3: so first of all, let's understand Uh, that in spite of all the intensity of the arguments and all the different opinions and all the different practices we see within the halachic group, and those people who accept halacha, the the classical system of Jewish law, as the fundamental uh, parameters of Judaism, uh, the reality reality is that all of these, for all the sound and fury, uh, they represent... Uh, relatively minor questions uh, in a uh, in in a very broad area of consensus. Because believe it or not, the last one of the ways of deciding law, if you don't have a Sanhedrin, is getting together basically the vast majority of rabbis uh, of acknowledged scholars, acknowledged rabbis in the Jewish community. This was done at the end of the Talmudic period, and that's why the Talmud represents the lodestar for Jewish law from there on in. And very briefly, the reality is uh, that all the arguments, as if it were, are in relatively small detail.
1: There are some... What would be, if if uh, if the Sanhedrin existed today... I'll ask you both. Let's start with you, Rabbi Afi. If, 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 if the Sanhedrin were reconstituted and existed today, it's kind of like a great court. What would be the question, a couple of questions or cases you think would be put to it?
3: So, uh, so I would do one that actually, though it's a matter of detail, uh, is a, is a, is a matter that can affect life and death. And that is the precise definition of death via the the ability to harvest organs for organ transplant. That's probably the most serious, undecided question that remains in dispute uh, at the present moment.
1: Pardon my ignorance. Is that about whether you can be an organ donor as a Jew or receive the organ? No, no, no.
3: How do we define death, and particularly what are the parameters for brain death? Uh, And this is a a matter of huge debate uh, within the... Within the, within the rabbinic community, and there are, and if you, the simple way of doing this, you know, go, it, it, you know, if you Google brain death, uh, you'll brain death and Jewish law, you'll see that there's a lot of discussion about this. So that would be, that would probably be useful. But again, the, the real, the real challenge, and this is something, uh, that uh, Green may address, uh, the real challenge is that, uh, there doesn't, that the, the, the all these attempts to to recreate the sanhedrin um have been have been seen as essentially impossible in the sense that it seems that the majority of opinions seem to say that we can't recreate smicha uh, um on our own with our present uh
1: uh, Rabbi Yafi, before we before we go back right. to the administrative, like, like how to whether it could even be reconstituted, I think it's interesting for listeners to understand the types of things that are, that are up for debate. The definition of death uh, is is a, is, a, is a key one. Um, w- Rabbi Green, what what are some of the other things, if we permit our mind to to wander, we permit our imagination to run that e- that a, a real life current day Sanhedrin might consider. Might it might be might be submitted to them to consider?
0: There are there are very important national national global uh, more global questions that need to be addressed that are not being addressed uh, amongst the specific rabbis of the specific communities and they can't be addressed in a global manner such as like I ta- like I spoke about before purposefulness and what are we doing here what are we doing in the land of Israel why do we have the state of Israel etc. One of the things Rabbi Steinfeld wanted the Sanhedrin, his Sanhedrin, he didn't even want to call it a Sanhedrin if you read about it. He just wanted to talk about a more global type of Beitim, a more a Beitim, a group of rabbis that are there to discuss more global issues. And one of them, for instance, is, and it might sound trivial, but it's really important because at the end of the day, this is where the real argument, this is the, real, the real fight is in Jerusalem, is about the Temple Mount. Where did the Temple stand mm-hmm. if we're already in israel if we're already there yeah because we can't we can't we construct just,
1: the third temple even think about it That's another, about i know it's about, time for it's another show but right. you can't even can't even think about that unless you know exactly where it should stand
0: exactly and those are questions once a group of rabbis who, who start thinking about these issues it inches it pushes and nudges the community and the world to start thinking about hey That is a good question, or we didn't think of that before. You can't think of that when you're not thinking globally. And I just want to say, regarding the technical parts of saying it's impossible, I'm going to say as a student of Rabbi Steinswald, that's when we perk up. Wow, you just said the operative word, impossible? (laughs) Hey, that's when we get to work, exactly. A lot of things we thought were impossible, but it needs to start happening. It needs to be start thinking, thought of. What are we doing here as a nation? Why did we survive? What are we doing in Israel? What is the state of Israel? Where are we going with it? For what purpose yeah. do we kill and be killed?
1: I think you know, also, and guys, like, of life and death. you know, I I just want to acknowledge that you know you 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 are both you're not representing a particular council or an Orthodox Union or, or et cetera, but you're both uh, scholarly. Uh, Orthodox rabbis. Both of you are working with with individuals in your ministry that are that are that are Orthodox and are not. Uh, and and I understand the lived experience is more varied. But to be fair, there are probably a lot of listeners who would want to submit other questions to the Sanhedrin. I mean, I I I would. Uh, you know, we had a show last week that was a bit raw, but I thought it was really interesting. And you know, w- one of the people in the show uh, brought up the point. Um, Kind of on and then after as well about like uh, in the contract, you know, polyamory and in the Bible, like Lot's daughter and Lot had a there was a polyamorous dynamic and and so forth. And I mean, and this stuff's like, oh, my God, you say it in the air and people are shocked. Well, you know what? Maybe it would be less shock value if there was this would be the kind of case of, you know, think about it as a Supreme Court. Either the court takes the case or says, no, that's already decided. Yeah. Polyamory is not allowed. Not decided. Or, you know what? We need to, we need to look at this because, you know, the, the, the Torah said nothing about that particular choice with Lot. There was no punishment or reprimand for that particular relationship. So yeah, it's worth discussing. I mean, I'm just big, picking a really kind of salacious example, but what about something that's a little bit more, um, current in terms of people's experiential reality? What about someone, a woman in Manhattan, you know, today, an accomplished professional woman who Considers herself observant and has certain restrictions on what uh, is considered appropriate to wear in, you know, in to, in life outside outside of the house. You know, is that is that halacha? And for those who don't know what that word, Jewish law, that would be governed by the court, or is that just custom? And even the just knowing that would be interesting for the for for a lot of people. So wouldn't wouldn't actually Rabbi Yafi, to, to challenge a little bit what you said before around kind of, in most cases, these, are, would, be, these would be edge case issues. Uh, I would, I would play the advocacy that in fact there are a whole bunch of contemporary issues that aren't edge case at all, but are, that go to the grain of daily Jewish life that we would submit to a Sanhedrin if it existed.
3: I would say just the opposite. Um, you should know that. Uh, most of these responses are from between 1955 and 1968. Uh But the Lubavitcher who was, a, you know, an extremely significant Jewish figure, someone who really was concerned with Judaism's role on the global stage and Judaism as a whole and reaching out. I don't have to tell you, I assume you know something about the Lubavitcher Cherev. So, because everyone who deals with Judaism does. So, in in And there are numerous letters, I mean, uh, where he very strongly criticizes, negates, not just the restoration of a Sanhedrin, but even a gathering of rabbis, a a global rabbinic gathering, precisely because uh, if it goes wrong, the damage to Judaism could be incredibly intense. The Sanhedrin Napoleon convened at the beginning of the 19th century. Right, interesting they to, example, yes. They, he tried to get them to basically make the Jewish community, because he had just conquered a whole bunch of countries with a ton of Jews. France didn't have so many. Um, and he wanted he wanted to get them to make Judaism adjust to, you know, his particularly enlightened uh, vision. And they did a lot of dodging and a lot of hemming and hawing, and ultimately managed to disband themselves before, Anything bad happens, but you know the idea of a group of people saying we're speaking for the Jewish people uh, when perhaps they don't really represent the Jewish people or even the whole community um, could be very damaging.
1: But again, I would say to, something to, else. again, though, to, to to play the devil's advocate, and, and, and Rabbi Green, I want you to have a, a last word here before our, our our next break. You know the idea of an aborted project uh, preventing you from continuing to endeavor to 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 birth the project, it, it has never resonated with me. I mean, we we wouldn't have all of the scientific discoveries, and many, and in fact, we wouldn't arguably have survived as a Jewish people had we taken that approach. So yes, there are there are dangers in, in, in recreating the Sanhedrin. And my understanding I may be wrong is that the Lubavitcher Reb also later in life, uh, you know, softened on that point of view. But the Napoleonic example, we won't go into detail here. You 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 address was was an, an, an important. Um, example of how it could be abused. But you know, Rabbi Stenzel said, I'll quote uh, here, um, he said, in order to move forward and no longer be defined as an aborted fetus, to become serious so we can say a child was born to us, we need a lot of time. The mere mention of the name Sanhedrin is not a given. It is no longer a matter of a religious council. It's something that has historical meaning, a basic change, not of one small system, but a fundamental system. It's no wonder that these things frighten people. So it, it, any great project is uh, frightening. I mean, it, and, and it can go in a wrong direction. We wouldn't have the United States of America if the, if initial aborted attempts at democracy hadn't taught the founding fathers lessons. And in the words, there was mutual learning going on between the American Revolution and the French Revolution back and forth for decades. I mean, it, just because it's complex and be abused doesn't mean a, a noble project isn't worthy of, of pursuit. Rabbi Green, are you with me?
0: Yes, I'm with you. I'm I'm, I'm waiting to hear. Uh, um, do you want me to comment on that?
1: Yeah. Give, give us the, the really impassioned, maybe exaggerate a little bit. If you'll go, give us the really impassioned argument for creating, for recreating or restoring, I should say, the Sanhedrin.
0: I, I'm not arguing for restoring the Sanhedrin. There's dangers that, that, I'm not, and I'm not scared of dangers. There, it's, it's, it's not advantageous to create a Sanhedrin that says we are now the governing body, we're talking, and we are, we are talking, and we are representing the Jewish people. It's not going to work. It's not, it's not a question of danger or not. What I am promoting, and I want to go back to something you said about Rabbi Steinfeld. When he started that, not only translation, but commentary on the Talmud, again, I want to say, That was just one other project, believe it or not. 45 years, the whole Talmud won because it fit in to what he was trying to do and what he was trying to push his students and his followers to do. Start thinking big. Uh, In fact, if you want to talk, my my wife just texted me to remind people that uh, Rabbi Steinsdorf used to say, the fundamental job of a scholar is to innovate. That is, we are here to create something big, to do something, and that makes it worthwhile. This whole project, this whole endeavor of the Jewish people makes it worthwhile if we are fulfilling our purpose, which is to create a dwelling, an abode for God, God himself in this world. Now, if we're working towards that, Sanhedrin, Talmud, Halacha, all these things have to fit together in order for God to dwell in the world. If one of these things are lacking, then we're not going to get to that point. Now, correct, we have to think very carefully how to get to that point, how to create this, how to do this. It can be very dangerous. Not only can it be very dangerous, it might not even be worthwhile to do it right now. But to start thinking, that's what Rabbi Steinfeld meant, generations, but we have to start somewhere. Yeah. We have to start thinking that we have to understand that Judaism, without a Sanhedrin, is... Fundamentally lacking and therefore God is not dwelling in this world the way it was supposed to be mm-hmm. and the way, the reason why the Jewish people are here in order to bring God into this world. Thank so you. We Thank have to think carefully how to do
1: so. Yeah. And let, after the break, we'll talk a little bit about how it could potentially be done, irrespective of whether it should be done. And we'll get to you, patient caller on line one. And you can participate in this discussion on the potential for reconstituting the ancient Sanhedrin. Remember at the beginning of the show, I said, this a little disclaimer. We, most people, or many people, particularly non-Jewish people, know the name Sanhedrin because of the, uh, Christian Bible's reference to the Sanhedrin as condemning, uh, uh Jesus and, and, and so forth. How we could do a whole nother show on how that, that historical record has been used and 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 somewhat invented over time, but let's just suspend that discussion. This is not about that particular historical suit event or pseudo event. It's about the. Original group of sages, the Sanhedrin. Their role is the great court, so to speak, the governing body, helping to interpret Jewish law, helping to guide the Jewish people in the earthly sphere. That organization, so to speak, let's call it an organization. Yeah, it's an organization. Seventy people. That body gets disbanded after being in existence for probably uh, well over a thousand years, I guess. And uh, in the fifth, early fifth century, and there's been efforts starting in the 16th century, serious efforts. To restore the Sanhedrin, that's what we're talking about. Judaism united? Would it be help would it help to unite us as a people globally at the level of observance with the Sanhedrin? That's the question on the table. We'll be right back. <music>
0: That's 212-661-3376. You could even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic
1: procedures. All right, we're talking about the Sanhedrin, this ancient body set up in the, the Bible, was in existence for well over a thousand years, and seems to me we should have that. I want that as a Jew. I want a, a governing... I may not agree. I may not necessarily follow every dictate, God knows, but it would be nice to have some reconciliation on some of the conflicts out there and interpretation of Jewish law. Line one, you're on the air. I think it's Stan, and you've been very patient. Bingo! <laughs> Stan! How are you, my friend? I'm good. Is this so? Is this a better topic than last week's, man?
2: I don't know. We'll find out if uh, the blood flows.
3: <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
2: <laughs> anyway, you know you always have great topics. I like to argue and not argue, so I love to listen, too. Uh, let me say this right off the bat. It can never happen. It will never happen. It doesn't. And you're right. It should not happen. For the simple reason, uh, we are probably more divided as Jews worldwide Than ever before. And I think that's the way it's going to stay. Uh, We have what's called the World Jewish Congress, which does minimal things that nobody listens to. We also here in New York have the Board of Rabbis, which is more of a public relations group. And if you want to need a rabbi to speak, that's it. That's as far as the hierarchy of the Jews in the world is. but even before that, and you brought up the point which you didn't want to discuss, and I'll discuss it, I'm a Jew, but I'm not a Christian, I'm not. If the Sanhedrin is brought back to the light, okay, it has to answer for its history, no matter what, I'm um, not to me, but to the world. I mean, they'll say, you have to answer about what you did to your own, Jesus Christ, a Jew. You say you don't want to discuss it, that's going to be the major paramour,
1: you, you, know what, Stan, kill, it, you know what? You know what? I think that would be cathartic thing. and healthy because I think at if this point, yeah, two thousand years if later, if there would be a lot it. of there would be not only theologians at the table discussing that, yeah, but there would be to, ancient it, historians it, it, discussing it, and I think there would be uh, there would be like would present, to uh, to evidence answer. would be presented.
2: It would have to answer for what it did and give some sense of. Uh, legitimacy. To the, once they a, did that, a, a they would tru- have some sort of A truth and legitimacy. reconciliation
1: commission between uh, the, the Jewish people, including the Christian branch. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, somebody,
1: yeah. I just offended some listeners. The I'm, other, sure. I'm just the other kidding, point. guys.
2: Even more. Here's yeah. the other point. Yeah. Where is this going to be? In Israel? New York? I mean, who's going to be on it? Just the Orthodox? They'd love that. I wouldn't. Liberals, well,
1: reformed. Rabbi Yaffe, I know that you, you have never, neither pregame nor on the show, I want to be fair to you, have said, we should reconstitute the Sanhedrin. This is purely a hypothetical question. Stan's positioning, I'm going to a position a hypothetical. If the Sanhedrin were created, we heard earlier in the show, it would have to be done in Israel, would the Sanhedrin and Forget have, it. Forget it. Hang on a second. Hang on. Be? I'm asking the question, Stan. I'm asking... Where's
0: Yuffie. it going to be?
1: Yeah, Wait, I'm sorry. Rabbi Yaffe, where would... First of all, theoretically, would you would you represent pro rata different Jewish communities around the world, and where would the Sanhedrin be seated, so to speak? Where would that Congress, so to speak, be seated?
3: Uh, when the Sanhedrin, is the Sanhedrin by the way can sit anywhere in Israel. It loses most of its power if it's not sitting in the in the rebuilt temple. There's a key point over here. Um, but I'll, I'll need about 120 seconds. You want me to take it later?
1: <laughs> Break it up into two. <laughs> 60 seconds.
3: Okay. Well, so quite simply, um, end of World War Two. Russian army is uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel. Brings people out of Siberia who literally never saw a car in their lives. They, they they sweep into Germany. They walk into these houses. There's these there's these lamps. There's these lamps with pull chains. You pull the chain, and the light comes on. They throw these lamps into their backpacks. Go back to the mud hut in Siberia. Um, plug the plug into the mud. Turn the chain. Nothing. No light. Because obviously you need a whole infrastructure and you in order for that for that magical light to work. Same thing here. Uh, for a Sanhedrin to work for a Sanhedrin to properly work, for right? for us to have everything the you Norway know, green talking about, you know, we're here to make God a dwelling place. We need to be together. We need to have a temple. We need to have the divine presence. We need the of and ship. We need the Messianic era. That's the electricity that causes the Sanhedrin to be restored. The I am I am
1: a I am a am I am a a tiny uh uh pawn <laughs> or how would it be? I, I have I cannot even hold a candle to your level of knowledge and, and, and scholarship. I, I I have a, a question though, because if, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the, you can make a strong argument that the third temple needs to be rebuilt in the messianic era, but I don't think it says anywhere you have to wait for, wait for the messianic era to reconstitute the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin get disbanded after the text in question would even, would even address that issue.
3: Right. The problem is the restoration of this of this particular type of of ordination. And this was the whole debate in the sixteenth century. And in the end, the vast majority of authorities, uh, and even Maimonides, whoever and relies on, seems to indicate he's not sure that his system works. This is a whole complicated discussion. You know, um probably Green might want to uh, address it in a moment. But the the bottom line the bottom line is is that Maimonides himself says, you know, that the Sanhedrin will be restored in Tiberias and the indication seems to be that we're talking about the era of the Messianic era. And the if you want to get technical, it we the 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 um you know the one of the one of the one of the things that happens with the with the era of Mashiach is that this is something the the Rabbah Rabba bin Zimra, Rabbi a who lived till 110, 16th century, um, he he writes about. He says, well, Elijah the prophet will return with the coming of the Messiah. Elijah has smicha. He has this. So when he returns and into this world, he can give smicha to someone. We can ordain someone, and the Sanhedrin can begin. So our Far- own stuff. But the whole of
1: the Right. I, I hear, I hear the technical argument. Uh, this is a, I geek out on this stuff. I hope folks are also interested. We only have eight minutes left. Rabbi Green, there's a technical argument that's on the table. The smicha, the, the ordination process, uh, from sage to sage, from member to member of the Sanhedrin gets broken, um, in like early fifth century when everyone is, is, dies out or is executed, it was on Sanhedrin. Um, that's a technical problem. It could be a huge technical problem. It could be an intractable, intractable, and oh my god, mush mouth, intractable technical problem. Um, but I would still say it's a technical problem. So, assuming, is there any way to get around that? I mean, <laughs> if you can get around that, if, if that's the strongest argument for not having the Sanhedrin,
0: should uh, we have we it? Maybe we need a synhedrin or. Maybe we need a Sanhedrin in order to answer how we can have a Sanhedrin.
1: Ah, you know, like, I like it.
0: <laughs> the thing is, is that, is that even the Rebbe himself was really pushing and encouraging people to learn the laws of the temple, the holy temple, as a preparation for when it comes so that we know what to do. And we and isn't it amazing that probably for a person, a person, like, I'm not saying only, but a person who understands us to not bring it to the fore and bring it or talk about it or do something about it, we wouldn't be talking about it. If we wouldn't be talking about it, there would be no preparation or thought. How, what, what can be done, how can it be done? Because it gets forgotten. You know, there's a famous line that says the Messiah, the Messiah, is going to come, Behesa Hadad with like a distraction of knowledge, not thinking about it. But there's many commentators, including the Rebbe, that explain that doesn't mean you're not supposed to be talking about it, because if you talk about it, the Mashiach can't come. That's not what it means there. The thing is, is that it needs to be on the table and discussed, because we have to get to more global conversation. We have to get to, you asked about before, what other, what other uh, issues would this unheathed deal with? It would deal with how does Judaism present what. How does Judaism teach about the seven-no-eyed law? How does it influence the world to become a better place, a place of godliness? And with regards to the, talk, to the caller, in, I just want to say two things very quickly. First of all, we have answered. We have answered them for 2,000 years with our blood, sweat, and tears. They have been asking us, what have we done? We don't need us in heaven to be asked, what did we do to them, or what did we do to Jesus Christ? We have answered, and we've answered good and well. We are here. That's our answer. Number two, I disagree with the notion that we've never been more divided. A little bit of study of Jewish history, we've been way divided, way more. In fact, I, who, what I do now is I work with public school Jewish kids, Jewish teenagers, all day long, everywhere, across the country, especially in New Jersey. And I can tell you, and I am also in an Orthodox community, and I have very good friends who are conservative and perform rabbis. In my opinion, we are more united than ever. Everybody wants us to get up and think and t- tackle the issues and start standing tall as Jews and start looking at ourselves. We have something to give to the world. And when we don't, we're united in disappointment.
1: Yeah. And I think. And therefore,
0: the discussion, right? It
1: ties back to Stan's comment. I think there are a lot of listeners that probably feel that way. And we've gotten some texts comments that are along these lines, yeah, actually it would be great, it's never going to happen, forget about it, it's never going to happen, oh yeah, I've heard shows about this before, it's never going to happen. But you know, in the in the mid and late 19th century, when the idea of the state of Israel really became a thing, you know, Teodor Herzl and other earlier, many of whom were, by the way, not uh, really observant Jews, but were, but were very strongly Jewish in their identity, everyone said that too, it's never going to happen. And, and granted, it took you know, 70, 80 years of, of struggle. And it took arguably the Holocaust as a catalyst. It did happen though. And I think that if we can't set our objective, we can't set our eyes on, 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 on noble and large objectives, then, uh, what are we doing now? One listener, Yossi from Crown Heights. No, not you, Yossi. I know who you No, Lots of Yossi in Crown Heights, not, uh, Yossi Vogel. Hi, Yossi. Um, another Yossi wrote that, uh, that we're wrong about the Rambam. Maimonides is also called the Rambam for, for perhaps for non-Jews or others uh, that don't know that. Um, and that, and that the Rambam, in fact, centuries before the, what, four or five centuries before the major attempt in the 16th century began to revive the Sanhedrin, um, called for the revival of the Sanhedrin. Yes, there were technical issues as, as, uh, as Rabbi Yaffe brought up, but it's calling us to task that that's wrong, that in fact, uh, the Rambam was, uh, um a strong advocate uh for the re- the restoration of the, of the Sanhedrin. I want to end here by showing listeners that we can learn and uh, from each other even when we don't agree and we'll do one brief um a little game here and Rabbi Yaffe I know that you have a lot of reservations around the practicality and the even the de- desirability of the creation of a, a recreation or restoration of the Sanhedrin. Give us if you will the advocacy position for a sec from your heart for what good it could do to have a Sanhedrin restored.
3: Well, I mean, by the way, uh, you know, first of all, you know, uh, Rabbi Green's vision of a glo- of Judaism speaking to the globe—that's something actually which Maimonides rules on, and no one disagrees with. And and you know, there have been a lot of great people. Uh, it so happens to of the people mentioned today, Rabbi. And, uh, and Rabbi uh, Evan Yisrael find out both work very hard on this and believe very strongly in this. So the idea that we need to get them that, that we have answers, not answers to challenges to Judaism, but all the global issues and, you know, all the the, the fundamental problems and malaises that we see uh, enveloping the globe today, we actually have answers and solutions and a path for people to live in peace and harmony and move in that direction. You know, the, the, you know, so first of all, that's absolutely the case. The obviously one of the most important things of having a son, when it when it can be done, indeed, is is a, a unification uh, of the Jewish people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a, in sort of a, a, an, a, because the Sanhedrin repre- doesn't just teach the Jewish people, tell them what to do. It represents the Jewish right. people. Right.
1: It's a representative body. Right, right.
3: Yeah, and that, and, yeah. And, and, and more than that, we're told that, that we specifically take from every tribe and that the members of the Sanhedrin Used to, it says, used to gird the loins with iron chains and walk to every village in Israel, looking for that kid who mm. one day could be a member of the Sanhedrin, and you that's know, beautiful. nurturing them the way they, you know, the
1: way. Rabbi the Green, way we've, we've got, run. we've got. Thank you, Rabbi Effie. We've got thirty seconds left. Give us a loving reason why we don't. We don't need the Sanhedrin, and we can put this debate to rest.
0: The greatest danger is not from not the fear of impossible, something that's impossible. the greatest danger is is doing something that can be aborted or hijacked by small, little people. Mm -hmm. And if we create something this great that we don't have great people to run it, it'll be taken over by petty, almost, I I might say, politicians, and that's what kind of what was happening even in Rubbish handles today, and that's very dangerous. Because then Mm -hmm. you have a body that is looked upon as a representative and semi-governing but it's not run by people who can govern. Right.
1: Well, this is an ongoing debate. Thank you, Rabbi Shlomo Yafi, Rabbi Shmuel Green, for being on the program talking about the restoration of the Sanhedrin. Cool stuff. See you next week. I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I do not
2: care who takes this bloody hill. I'm angry and I'm tired all the time. I wish there was a treaty I wish there was a treaty Between your love and mine Ah, they're dancing in the street It's jubilee We sold ourselves for love But now we're free I'm so sorry for that ghost I made you be Only one of us was real
3: And that was me